to the open side. Karim Bete. Hufflegal here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hi there and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby. We are the people's podcast, providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Mitch, and with me is Lockie. Lockie, how are you this week? Good, good, Mitch. It's good to see you back in action, but I've got to confess I'm in mourning. I'm in mourning after being down at Ballymore yesterday for the Hospital Cup final and watching my Wests being robbed, robbed at the death. But no, not really. It was a a damn good game, though. Congrats to brothers. And um, just good to get some live footy in. What have you been up to, Mitch? Does it does it make it easier losing a final when it's close, or losing by fifteen? What What do you think? Oh, I think I'd rather lose by fifteen, so you know it's coming. But it was a it was a last play of the game. Uh, West had an attacking line out, rolled them all a, a good track of the way, went over the line, and the call uh, was held up from the referee. But yeah, that's. Yeah, that's the that's the deal in those moments. We had other opportunities to kick a three. Uh, there were some great tries from both teams. Um, big Harry Wilson took out man of the match in that game. So lots of super rugby and test players on the field. It was really high quality. And there was obviously shoot shield, um, John I. Dent and Dewar shield all happening this weekend. So it was a yeah, big, finals big all around day. Australia. Um, yeah, it's awesome, mate. Now, what have you been up to? Yeah, I've watched uh, the Wallabies this morning. And unfortunately, we will have to rip that bandaid off shortly and talk about that. Uh, not the result we were hoping for. Eddie is going into the World Cup zero from five. So definitely not the start of his Wallabies tenure that he would have been wanting. But we will get to that. There has been some massive games of rugby over the weekend. You just touched on some of the local stuff. We have also had the final warm-ups of the, the various nations before the World Cup kicks off in two weeks' time. So some pretty exciting results. I won't, if you don't know them, I won't say them here because we, we will talk about them a little bit later, but some really exciting games to chat through. Um, and then we have the World Cup kicking off in two weeks. So I guess something that our fans have been asking for for a while and we've been whispering about if we're going to do it or not, we are. Uh, I can officially confirm that we are running a, a tipping comp. We're actually running two tipping comps or, of sort this year for the World Cup. So on Superbrew, we have the predictor competition world cup predictor it's called so if you do want to join us we already have 41 members in there which is a great start considering it's only a few days old but we want to get that number up we want to get this one of the bigger comps going around for the world cup so if you are interested in joining us uh go onto the app search pick and drive rugby we should come up if not you can search for us via the pool pool code m-a-n-y-j-u-n-e so that's the first one uh, and the second one is we're also running a World Cup fantasy competition. Now, to be completely honest, I'm not 100% sure how this works yet. I haven't been able to read through the rules and work it out, but it is a little bit different. We have had a few people come in and ask for one of these. So we are running that as well. I believe we don't. We can have any players we want in term uh, as long as it doesn't overreach a salary cap or some kind of talent system. Uh, but if you are interested in joining that, we do currently have 21 members in that competition. Uh, do search for us in that uh, Pick and Drive Rugby, or you can search for our pool, co- pool code V-A-T-S-S-L-A-T. So yeah, do please get involved. We'll also have those links on our social media platforms as well. So um, it shouldn't be too hard for you to find and to get involved. 
what are we going to talk about this evening? So we have the Wallabies game against France, the last, the final warm-up match before the World Cup begins. We'll, we'll chat through that game, chat through the results, get our thoughts on that. Australia A played over the weekend as well against Portugal. Uh, we haven't actually been able to watch that game. It's a bit of confusion whether it was or wasn't streamed, but for the most part, I don't think we have seen much of it. But we will chat through some of the team selections and the results. Uh, then we'll dive into some of the other results uh, from the weekend round of rugby that was, I guess they're kind of calling it the Autumn Nation Series, but um, the the final warm-up tests before the World Cup. Uh, and then next week, we will do our full World Cup preview episode. We'll go through all the, the competition of the World Cup that's kicking off in France in two weeks' time. Uh, we'll go through the Australia games. We'll do a little bit of a preview on each one of those and maybe sort of announce how we think, who the favourites are leading into the competition and and how the, the tournament's shaping up so far. Anything else I've forgotten there, Lucky? No, that's pretty comprehensive, I think. Let's just rip in. Let's go. Let's get it. Let's get into it. Right, we return now, and everybody, hi, I'm here, Ando. Yeah, uh, I had some tech issues that meant I wasn't able to be here in the first part of the pod, but I am yeah, apologies, here. everyone. I forgot Andrew. to I forgot to mention that Ando <laughs> was coming or hopefully coming at some point. I kind of just took over the reins of the intro and just did it on the fly. So, not as You're polished there. as what you normally do, Ando, Ando but we got there in the end. Uh, we got there in the end. That's what matters. And unfortunately, that is what the Wallabies were unable to do against France. Despite some occasional good moments, and, and there were a couple of good moments throughout the match, we got absolutely pumped 17 to 41. And I really hope that if you're an Australian-based listener of the pod that you didn't get up at 1.45am mm. to watch this game. Personally, I woke up at 5am to watch this game and that was bad enough. So we're going to go through this in all of its glory, try and pull out some positives where possible. But lucky. I... I just want you to start off immediate reactions. Where did it go wrong for the Wallabies? Uh, we went wrong in the seventh minute when they scored a first phase try through a Dunty crash ball over two Wallabies. Mm-hmm. And it was at that yep. exact moment that I went, ah, okay, this is going to be a long game. That kind of concession so early in the piece uh, is well, speaks volumes to me. Uh, about a team's intensity from goal line defense. And that was the first test and we failed straight up. So that put me in a pretty bad frame to watch the rest of the game. And everything was almost colored by that from there, which is no disrespect to Jonathan Dante, who was probably one of the best players on field. And to my mind is the best 12 in the world at the moment. But yeah, that that set us up for a long afternoon. And the, the physicality was somewhere where I thought, we just got a little shaded after a really good performance in Dunedin. It's dropped off a bit in my book. Yeah, Dante, in my mind, is what I want Summer Karevi to be, but injuries uh, have, have prevented him from doing so. Um, Dante was dominant in the carry, really strong in defence as well, and also is just, if not up there, is clearly the best on-ball defensive 12 in the world. His ability to jackal and just get turnovers from any position within the field is next level. Uh, Mitch, your quick read. What went wrong for the Wallabies? Kicking points. Uh, I think it was Carter Gordon's third shot at goal that he actually got one. Um, That's when I started to realize that this World Cup, 
potentially already could be over for the Wallabies if we don't have someone able to take points when they're on offer. We saw that when mm-hmm. France got into our 22, they were able to apply pressure to the Wallabies through the scoreboard. They took points when they were on offer. They took penalties when they were 40 metres out for the first few times before they scored tries. And the Wallabies, when they tried to do that, we had two shots at goals and we, at goal and we missed. So we're not able to apply that same type of pressure. We went down multiple times into France's 22 and came away without points, which we've seen so far this year for the Wallabies. If you're not able to come away with points when you get entries into the opposition attack zone, it's going to be a long game. And with teams like France, with the outside backs that they have and the prolific try-scoring players that they have in their back line, we need to be taking those opportunities and, and effectively converting them when we when we have them. Yeah, definitely. And you look at the actual um, stats within the game and, I mean, France only scored one more try than us. We scored three tries, they scored four tries. But we only converted one of our tries, the 61st minute Fraser McWright try, whereas Thomas Ramos converted two, Jaminet got a third, got a third and then <laughs> Ramos kicked four penalties and Jaminet got a fifth penalty uh, right at the end of the game to extend it out to 41 points for France. And Sergio Ramos is one of the best place kickers in the world currently. He, he's excellent from the tee. And I'm not saying we need to find in the next week and a half, two weeks, a Sergio Ramos. But you're right, Mitch. I think kicking is going to be a weakness. And one of the elements of the French game that was really impressive throughout this was also their close kicking game, or the tactical kicking game is another way of mm. saying that. Just the ability of them of them to be able to find space, uh, find grass with their kicks, to be able to turn around our defence or, or play the ball wide enough so that the defensive winger has to come up in the line and commit into the defensive line. Um, and then before the fullback is able to then sweep across and cover that space, they're putting their kick in behind. There's just so much really, really good play from this French outfit that, yeah, look, Australia were poor. Australia were poor in parts. And without a doubt, we, we need to be better if we want to have a chance of going deep within the World Cup. But this is a French team that's on fire and is clearly, clearly favourites in my mind to be lifting the World Cup. Is that a bit presumptive or was this French team just well and truly outclassing the Wallabies? I don't think we were outclassed, but we were definitely outthought. So you mentioned the uh, French uh, attacking short kicking game, which was really effective, obviously. Um, I think it was... uh, uh, Jalibert that set up um, the chip to that found Gavin Villiers in the corner um, on the left side in 63rd minute. And then they obviously DuPont's little cross kick for Penal. He did his own chip and chase. Um, but our taking, our taking kicks were good as well. We had the box kick that found Nwanganita Wase that set up McWright's try. Um, obviously, there was a little interplay for Vunavalu to get up late in the piece as well. But yeah. I thought we were, we were outthought and we were really outpositioned. That's where we got let down. And um, I'm sure we'll touch on it a little bit um, on Vunivalu's game in total. But defensively, he did get caught out a couple of times that left us short. And I'm thinking specifically of um, Penau's chip and chase try towards the end where we saw Vunivalu in wearing number 11, supposedly on the left wing, sprinting back across to the right side and leaving a huge hole that Penau just ran through, chipped over Nwanganidawasi and scored. So I don't think we were outclassed, but we were definitely outthought. And mm, yeah. I think those little those little kinks in our game, they're going to really hurt. And full credit to the French for exploiting them. Yep, definitely. 
So why don't we go into a few of the players across both the French and the Wallabies teams who stood up and actually performed relatively well. Uh, Mitch, why don't we get two from you before we jump back over to Lockie? On the Wallaby side, we've, uh, we need to talk about Suli Bunavalu. I think this definitely is his best game of rugby for the Wallabies and probably his best involvement in the game of rugby union since he's come across. Yes, he was found out out of position a few times in defense, but the involvements that he had in attack, he was Marika Korobeti-esque at times, just popping up everywhere, getting his hands on the ball, going Big looking calls. for the ball. I didn't say he was better. I said he was just esque. Um, but he he was having he was going roaming and he looked hungry and he was having involvements across the field, not just waiting for the ball to come to him on the wing, which we've seen so f- from him so often uh, for the past two years in the game of rugby. So I was impressed with the way he did that. Um, I with I thought he was quite solid under the high ball, took a few good ones, uh, something we haven't utilized in our players previously in the last few tests. So it was good to have an option to, to kick across to and that try that he scored at the end controversially whether he was onside or not. Um, I'm sure the, the French crowd definitely didn't think he was, um, but the fact that he was able to get up and, and secure the ball so well and score the, that try is something that we haven't utilised as much. Yep. So, Lockie, throwing it over to you then, we, we've looked at um, Sylvie Navalo, who was a player either French or Aussie who stood out to you. I, I was really, really impressed with Dante, as we mentioned before. Um, Damien mm-hmm. Pennell stood up for me. Um, he was terrific, but... I think the player that really shone for me was uh, Thomas Ramos. So mm. you've got a kicker who can just control the game from the tee, but also he kicked really effectively um, from the hand as well in general play. I think we saw, I think it was maybe midway through the second half, Tom Ramos just dropped the most outrageous 50-22, sort <laughs> of a banana kick that just with no angle to work with, and it set up the try for Villiers um, a minute later. So at that point, it was 26-12. Um, McWright's just scored, and the ability to flip pressure in about a 60-second window and put themselves in an attacking 22 off one kick, that speaks volumes to me about a fullback who's totally in control of his game. So I'm expecting big things from Ramos this year. Um, but from our side, I'll throw up a couple of the forwards because they haven't got a mention so far this game. I thought Taniela Tupo had a massive shift. Um, played really well coming back into it for the first time in a while. We've actually really seen being effective I, in the camera. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't that impressed with Tupo this week and he scrummaged well, I'll grant you that, but I didn't think he had the running game that we've come to expect from him. And I don't think he's 100% fit, game fit for the impact that we see of of like Angus Bell had. And I also thought he gave away a few silly penalties. That um, sort of push off the ball early, that high tackle that it was eventually ruled was just careless and didn't need to happen. And he, he gave away a few penalties just from silly, like give like not getting low enough in tackles and, and got leading with the shoulder and just simple things, simple errors that we've seen creep into his game in the past few weeks. I think that's pretty tough. So, yeah, the high tackle one was careless, but the one where he's penalised for going off his feet, he's made the tackle, got up over the ball, driven past it, and then he's been penalised because the following counter-ruck has knocked him over. So it's the Aussie players behind him that have driven it over the ball. He was on his knees. Like, he was another, another referee not hold- turnover. 
So I, I, I'm, I'm going to stick up for him. I thought he had a pretty good game. And also, like, yeah, we'd like him to be running three, but also I'd like a three that can just be solid. We don't need to have a outrageous ball runner. Look at, like, a Franz Malherber or um, a Uni Antonio, just big boys who can set a scrum. That's what I'd like from a tight head. When you've got a bell, when you've got other big timber around us that can run, a Tupo running ball is luxury for mine. So I was really happy to see Bell and Tupo on the same starting side. I think that's a huge tick for us. And then um, another one who I thought had a great crack, Fraser McWright, looked really comfortable at that level. Yeah, completely agree. I think that Fraser McWright was excellent throughout. I mean, his try was just brilliantly taken with the way he accelerated onto the ball in that in that moment. A player that I thought stood up particularly well was Bobby Valentini. So he he basically, I don't remember an opportunity or a time where he got driven back with McCarry. He seemed to almost always be getting over the game line, which is rare against a French defence that was rushing up and targeting our initial receiving forward pod almost immediately as they got the ball. And that actually speaks to a broader question about Australian tactics or the Australian approach within the game. Because we saw a couple of times off set-piece play where we did have a bit more depth um, or opportunity or space in which our, our back line could play, that we were able to get some really good width on the on the play. And Mark Nwanganisa, Wasse got a try early on from that. But mm. what I thought kept happening was we kept trying to play within our forward pod system, but their rush defense would come up and shut their pod down before they had a chance to really do much with it. And so we'd be driven back, either wouldn't have made the game line or be driven back a little bit more every single time we had the play. So what I would have loved to have seen is not just to fling it out early and kind of hit and hope and see if we can get outside or over the top of the rush D, but is to either consider using our short kicking game a little bit more with players like Vunavalu and Noangani Tawase in there, or have hard runners cutting under line, unders lines in against around the edges of, edges of the ruck the previous ruck, just to force the defence to have to compress a little bit before we can then go a little bit wider. Because it seemed like we just tried to keep going one phase out and it would not move. It, it was not getting any pay for it. Um, but a lot of that comes down to that typical Sean Edwards defence that is so often touted by the French. Um, Sean Edwards coming across from the England system, being an ex-league coach, uh, he basically just makes them work hard, rush up, shut down opportunities, stay connected, work really, really hard. So in a broad sense, I think France are incredibly deserving winners in this game. Um, we've spoken about a couple of players that stood out. Um, like we already mentioned, Dante was excellent, man. How much are we missing Len Iketau at the moment, Mitch, mm. in the Aussie midfield? It, it, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely starting to come back and bite us on the butt. This week... We definitely miss Samu Krevi as well. Uh, no disrespect to our centre pairing. Did Pataya start? Yeah, did he come on? Pataya at twelve. Pataya thirteen. Yeah, so I, I I thought he did, but I don't recall him doing a great deal in the first half, and only sort of really took notice of him in the second half. I also didn't think Faketi had the greatest game at twelve either, and whether that just comes down to combinations and the fact that he hasn't played a lot of rugby at this level with Jordi Pataya. Um, with Carter Gordon as well. Uh, questions around tactics and, and selection, we can probably get into a in a little bit in the preparation for this test. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't think that our centre pairing was as strong, particularly again, as France was and how dominant they were. We definitely didn't you know, hold a shadow to the impact that those guys had on the game. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, it's tough to imagine that a team that, 
I think the 10, 12, 13 pairing had never played together. Mm. So you've got Gordon with a Fichetti Pattaya combination, both of them coming off injuries, plus a right winger exclusively for his career now playing on the left for a game. And then there's so many combinations in that back line that were never going to click from the get-go in this game. So I think throwing throwing Fichetti and Pattaya to the Wolves against Dante and mm. Fiku was a huge challenge. And I think, yeah, for the by and large, they they got dusted, which you'd expect. You know, 80 plus thousand people at Stade de France, one of the world's best 12s, Gal Fico, who's no slouch. That's a massive test. And I'm much rather see it, and I'm sure you'd agree, see us have this game now before the World Cup than in the middle of it, you know, against a Fiji or against a Wales. If anything, we yep. can hopefully blow the cobwebs off this, say, thanks very much. It's our last trial. Um, let's scrap the five games that we haven't won this year and put it all down to learning. <laughs> we'll start fresh. The heist. Mitch, do you want to jump in here with some comments about uh, from Taniel Tupo on the game plan? Yeah, so there's an, there's an article that came out on the Raw this morning and there's some comments in there that Taniel Tupo has made. And I don't, I don't know whether this was just through a, an interview that he did on the stand coverage because I didn't watch much after the game or whether it was like a, an, an interview he did with the journos. But from what he was saying, the game plan that the Wallabies used today was a game plan that Eddie Jones basically came up with at the beginning of the week for France. The team that they had selected and this game plan was just purely for this game and that they've been training for the World Cup and they're playing a completely different game plan, completely different style when they get to the World Cup. And he said, I was impressed that the boys got pay in a number of areas. We, we got a few penalties from the scrum. We, we scored a few tries. We weren't expect not, he didn't say that they weren't expecting to win. Um, but basically that, that this was a, a game that they had earmarked as let's test combinations. Let's play a different style. Let's not show our hand for what we're going to play in the world cup. Mm. How much do you read into those comments? Do you think that's true? Do you think that that's something that the Wallabies would have done? It does seem very Eddie Jones. And that's, that's the part of it that makes me think that there might be some truth to it. Um, also, I just want to clutch at straws and try to find something positive to look forward to for, uh, for the World Cup itself, that maybe maybe this performance and the way they approach this game was not indicative of how they're going to be playing in a World Cup, hopefully. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there are some pretty key areas where we're getting dusted and done, like defensive positioning is not good enough, not being able to... Um, stand up to hard runners coming at kind of 10-12 channel isn't good enough. And that's not a game plan thing. That's just a physicality and capacity to respond to the um, winning the collision element of rugby union. Mm. And so, yeah, they can say all that they want about uh, having an overall game plan that they're saving for the World Cup. But if Mm. you're not actually able to execute on the fundamentals of the game, like our line-out was shocking throughout this match and really didn't seem to respond to how France was putting um, pressure on them. I just uh, think it's clutching at straws a bit. Lockie, am I being too harsh? No, I was actually, that leads me on really nicely because I wanted to talk about the line-out briefly. Um, The back-to-back line-out steals around the 50th Mm. minute when we had all the ball, all the territory, all the pressure, and Tommy Hooper goes up at the front and gets picked off back-to-back I, that was that was schoolboy stuff. It wasn't even a contest in the air. He was outfooted. The French jumper got a shoulder in front of him 
and was coming across on the line of the ball before Hooper could even get a sniff twice. So, I mean, that's stuff that concerns me more than the physicality, which is obviously critical. But, you know, two weeks out from the World Cup and you're not executing other than attacking line out in 22. Like, that's frustrating. That's frustrating to see when we've had a TRC campaign. We've had the extra blenders low in Dunedin. And to see, in my mind, a regression, as I mentioned earlier, that's frustrating. And I guess what's frustrating too in that area of regression from the game the Wallabies last played in Dunedin to this week, and we have seen this from the Wallabies for the past few years, is giving away simple penalties and just taking the pressure off the opposition. You can do 15 phases of really good attacking style rugby, mark your way up the field, you get into the 22 and someone gives away a penalty for sealing off or, um, you know, just really simple errors that we aren't able to execute well enough. And that's what's frustrating is against against the All Blacks in Dunedin, the Wallabies looked polished and they didn't give away a heap of penalties. They looked like they were playing a game plan. They were getting back on their feet quickly. They weren't lying around the, the breakdown and the ruck. They weren't giving away those simple penalties that we've come to expect. And this week, those penalties were coming back into the game. And that was what was frustrating, that we've taken one step forward and we've named a fairly similar team in a lot of regards to that that test in Dunedin. Yet that error has come back into the game, that we're giving away those penalties. And in and in the way that international rugby is, is shaping at the moment, when you give the opposition options of three points in your own half, they're going to take it every day. And that's what we saw this week, that 16 to 5 at half time, the Wallabies didn't look like getting back up into the opposition half and scoring tries. That's actually another point that I've just thought about too. Our mall, our attacking mall has not been effective since Laurie, since Laurie Fisher and Dan McKellar left at the end of last year. Not we, enough. We have had, we've had so many options on the opposition try line and we, we, you know, we process from line out to mall and then oppositions either sack us, take us out, collapse it legally. We just aren't, effectively um, scoring points off that set piece. Yeah, definitely. And I think what that's... um, For that point, I do actually wonder if they've got a few more set plays that they're looking to use. They didn't seem to try any particular variations in in the attacking malls um, that they they were able to execute on. And so that makes me think, yeah, they wouldn't just be doing the same old game plan again and again in terms of just bring it down and try and push on through. Every team has a couple of go-to variations that they use. And... I feel like it has to be a choice for the Wallabies to not be putting those into this game. So maybe in that particular particular element, yeah, they could have been holding things back. But again, it could have just been poor execution and poor line-out leadership as well. I mean, I'd like to hope for something better, but they could have just been bad. <laughs> it's entirely possible as well. But it was saving all the cards, all the cards that he's got up the sleeve. All yeah, the reds, hope, all the yellows. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have well, um, we have Australia A to chat about yep. in a moment. But what I wanted to talk about, we haven't actually had a chance previously to break down the Wallabies team that Eddie Jones named this week. Two players got their debut this week, Blake Shop and Isaac Fines Liliwasa. The first person that I want to call out in for Australian rugby and I feel has been completely let down by the system yet again is Ryan Lonigan. How unfair does it feel for him to have been in the Wallaby squad now 
or was he selected in the, the wider training squad last year? He definitely was there in the TRC this year, but he has been in the Wallabies training squad for two years now and has not played a minute, has not made his debut. Isaac finds Liliwasa comes into camp at the naming of the World Cup and the first test he gets given minutes off the bench. That's just so frustrating for a player like Ryan Lonigan, who we know what he can do. We know he's the future. We know his leadership qualities. Yet he hasn't been given that opportunity to show what he can do at test level. He's just been holding tackle bags. I just, I don't know. It doesn't sit great with me um, that he hasn't been given the due diligence and the minutes and the opportunity that a player like Isaac Fines has. Yeah, look, uh, uh, you, you need a good kicker as well. You need a good kicker. Just bring in, just bring in Ryan Lonigan. But Lockie, no, look, I I agree with the sentiment around Lonigan in the sense that he has been earmarked as a future Wallaby and a leader at that as well. I know that he skippered Oze in the Portugal game, which we'll touch on in a tick. But I mean, also, I don't want this to take away from the debutants. Like Isaac Fonseca yeah. is twenty seven. He's played through Queensland system. He played QPR. He's bounced between Brumbies and forced to get his crack. And I don't think we're going to begrudge a guy for finally earning that Wallaby cap. But, yeah, I agree. It's tough. It's tough to see mm-hmm. Monaghan. But if Eddie's going to go down this utility, you know, 6-2, 7-1, 8-0 split, whatever it comes down to, um, finds Lilia Wasser being able to cover half back and be really speedy as well, it does come into consideration. But I, I totally get the frustrations. Yeah, and look, we do need to increase the um, the appearances of force players within the Wallaby setup, and so he's a deserving candidate of of, mm. of getting that tokenistic uh, in introduction and improvement into the Wallabies. So well done. Ooh. I know. Well, Ben I Donaldson's know. a force player too, and he's the chosen boy under Eddie Jones. Did it's you guys true. catch Eddie it's Jones's true, comments way. in the lead up to this test around Ben Donaldson that he accidentally let slip? that the reason that he's been selected is basically because he plays for Randwick. (laughs) So there was, they asked, they asked a question around Eddie, around Ben Donaldson and and what he's been bringing off the training paddock. And he said, he's had a really good past few years at Randwick. He, he knows the style that we play, the style that Randwick is known for. And he said, he said, we, and then he was like, Oh, sorry. I mean them. And uh, (laughs) he had to really like backtrack there. But it was pretty evident that the only, that he likes him so much because he's a Randwick player. Oh, I mean, if they win a shoot shield, they can win a World Cup, right? That seems fair. That's how it works. That's what people in SIU say. Let's uh, let's keep moving, though. Let's get into the Aussie game. Now, Ando, you've caught a little bit of this, we understand. Somehow you've yeah, yeah, found a, so, a stream. Yeah, um, Portugal Rugby TV, which is a thing. I didn't know that existed. Um, they, they streamed the match. And so if... You go on to, quick plug, our Discord channel and you go into the international rugby section. You can see the link being provided there, there to catch this stream. It's a legit one. You're not going to any dodgy websites or anything like that. Um, but you will need to skip through to the game. I watched about half an hour of it. Uh, and what I basically saw is that you're going to have our entire second string team play Portugal. Um, there were a couple of decent players. I don't know their names. I'm sorry, I haven't watched any of Portugal over the last couple of years, but their scrum half looked pretty good when I was watching. Um, and one of their wingers as well looked like he had a fair bit of skill and speed. But for for my mind, the 30 to 17 win, um, 
should have been a lot more emphatic. Basically, what kept happening was basically the Australian way of playing rugby, which is to have some really good moments and opportunities to put a, a lot of pressure on the opposition and then to drop or needlessly infringe right as you're getting into the try scoring opportunity. So the vast majority of the time, the Aussie A players were getting themselves into good places and then just either dropping the ball cold, um, obstruction calls, uh, going off. Or Lockie Swin took someone's head off. He actually played really well. Um, the the part of the game that I, that I watched and the reviews that I've read about the game indicate Lockie Swinton actually did quite well. Admittedly, it's against the Portuguese defence, which doesn't have the physicality of the Tier 1 nations. But he was running hard, providing a lot of physicality within his running game. He, he did well. Got to give him that. He's a funny one, Swinner, because he actually played really well against Tonga before he did his noodle at the end and got sent off. <laughs> So, like, you we almost wonder whether he's become a bit of a forgotten man in that back row setup. Everyone's talking up Tom Hooper, Rob Leota. We've got these big sixes. But, you know, fast forward, I mean, rewind, sorry, to 2020 and 2019. And that was Lockie Swinton up and coming. So maybe he had us have a role to play. The problem with Lockie just... Swinton at the moment is that you can't, as a coach, you can't rely on him to not give away a penalty when it's crucial. And, and we've seen it for the Waratahs. He's given away penalties. He's given away cards. He's caught, he's hurt the team that he's playing for. And whilst he can have good involvement, and he did this week for Australia A, realistically, he lost us that test against Tonga for giving away that silly penalty. So at the moment, yeah, it, it's kind of like, is he bringing enough good to overcome the, the negative and the, the fact that he's, he's, he's going to give you a card or potentially a, a red card? Can you, can you select him knowing that you've got enough coverage on the bench to get over get through the game without that that's the, yeah, the question maybe, at the moment maybe with the seven one split the classic seven one split i wouldn't be surprised to see eddie jones do that but then have josh kemeny as the one uh someone who can cover the entire back line hey, hey, boys, the box before we, um, boys before we finish up on australia a and get into some of the other results around the weekend and you said you saw some of the game how did james o'connor go uh i didn't see enough of it to get a bit of a verdict on him um i i sorry i don't have enough to say but uh, Lockie and I were talking... I've just been making stuff up. Oh, you've just been making it up. Okay. Uh, Lockie and I were talking <laughs> in it off, off air throughout the week around James O'Connor. And I've got a theory that James O'Connor is a lot closer to a Wallabies recall than we probably have thought in the past. We're one injury in the centres from James O'Connor being recalled into the Wallaby squad. If we lose Fiketti, if we lose Pattaya, James O'Connor parachutes straight in. Uh, and in some ways, I was also saying to Lockie this week that in my books, James O'Connor would be the perfect person currently to be the Wallabies captain instead of Will Skelton. Just the mm. trajectory of his career, the fact that he's come home, that he's led Queensland to an, a, a Super Rugby AU title, that he's stuck it out at home. He's, he's turned away contracts for big money over in France. He's done right by the Australian rugby system to give him the chance at the World Cup to captain the team, to almost be that prodigal son in a in a way um, that Will Skelton has kind of done the opposite. And this week, we I don't think Will Skelton had the impact on the game this week to justify his naming of captain, um, but we will see how he goes throughout the rest of the tournament. God, you don't yeah, like I mean, Will Skelton, do you? No, I do like Will Skelton. I just don't like the fact that he's not Australian base. And I think James Slipper should be <laughs> our captain over him or someone who plays rugby in Australia. French World Cup. 
French Royal Cup, it's different rules for Eddie. I don't know. I And just thinking on this quickly, and I know we'll wrap it up after this, I, I like the James O'Connor narrative. I really do. I buy into it. The going overseas, you play for Sale, you play for Toulon, come back with the Reds. It's been a really interesting path. But I think we've just uh, collectively, as, a, as rugby fans, we'll put aside our critic hat. As rugby fans, I think we just need to back Will Skelton because he's had mm. one test. He's had one test as skipper. And with this tournament base, I know it's going to be a short-term thing. I just get that sense that this is Eddie's sort of raid captain, if you will. And we can't throw him away after one game in the hot seat. Otherwise, we'd have thousands of Wallaby captains, not just the very select 80 or so that we've had throughout history. So I'm going to get behind him. But if O'Connor pops in as the you know number 22 or number 23 and is riding the pine for those first few World Cup campaign games... I'm not surprised at all. He fills the same role as Ben Donaldson in covering 10, 15, plus he can cover 12, 13, plus he's played test level on the wing. I can't think of a better suited person to plug gaps come a tight World Cup game than James Plus he can kick a goal. Plus caps. Yeah, he can. He's been doing it for decades. So, you know, that, that'd be my pick for a um, bolter heading into the first game against um, Georgia in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Well said. Well, why don't we move into the other internationals from across the weekend? Because there was a lot of rugby to be that was played for the warm up. Uh, Mitch, are we going to dive straight into it or should we have a quick break? Let's have a quick break so people can go uh, get a, a drink and then uh, come back and dive into some of the juicy games we've had. All right, let's go. All right. The most impressive news from the weekend was the Springboks 35 to 7 demolition of the All Blacks over in France. And now I could um, say the words of my headmaster at school, who's a Kiwi, who claimed that this doesn't really matter because it was just, it, it's not the warm up. In, and it, it's better to get this type of game out of the way before the World Cup anyway. But that's loser talk. Really, the Springboks got absolutely on fire through something and demolished the All Blacks. And it wasn't a case of the All Blacks being poor. It was a case of the physicality and the directness of the Springboks overwhelming the All Blacks. So, Mitch, starting off with you, this game was a statement from the Springboks. What did you take away from it? Leading into this game... And through the rugby championship, South Africa had been good, but I wasn't convinced that they were coming into this World Cup as favourites to go back to back. This game has really shaken my foundations. They did everything so well in this tournament, in this game, sorry, that I don't see them. If they play like this and they play to this level for the full tournament, I don't see anyone coming close. They dominated New Zealand in every facet of the game. New Zealand has been speaking all year around how with their new scrum coach that their maul has been so effective that they haven't, you know, conceded maul tries. They haven't, um, no maul has been collapsed or they've successfully scored points through their maul X amount of times. South Africa scored three tries through their maul this game and New Zealand didn't come close to conceding to, to scoring points through their more. It was just an absolute masterclass that their set piece, their more particularly, is such a weapon that they can 95% be conf- 
pretty confident when they go to line out that they're going to come away with points, whether it's through um, scoring the try or the opposition doing something illegal, collapsing it, giving away a card, penalty try, or a penalty to kick the points. Yep, jumping across to Lockie now, main takeaway. Just quickly on the lineouts as well, the more was so effective, but two other tries were from more variations. So you had the blindside play with Khaleesi hitting marks to open the second half and just there's like a dagger in the heart after half time. And then the sneaky move up the middle of the lineout through Quagga Smith. I mean, they've they've got weapons everywhere from that lineout set piece. It's really scary. And when you look at our from a wallaby perspective, our lineout defense, I'm thinking that's going to be tough to handle. That's going to be very tough to handle. Um, but the main takeaway was the the brutality of the Springbok, um, not only Springbok forwards, but the centre pairing as well. Um, you had ball runners coming from the back fence and from all angles. It was constant sustained pressure. And even though it was you know still um, nil all after the first 15 minutes, it never looked like the game was going any other way because the Springboks were running so hard into contact and they forced those first yellow cards. And when Khaleesi goes over at 7-0, I was always thinking, okay, this is this is it. This is where this game's going. It was, for mine, a statement win in the sense of World Cup games are won by pressure. They're won by converting pressure into points and grinding teams into the ground. And that has me in no doubt now that the Springboks are in my top two favoured sides to take this out this year. Aside with Australia, of course. Oh, yeah. aside from Australia. The underdogs, obviously, are top of the top of the list there. Um, but within this, it could be quite easy to point to Scott Barrett's yellow, uh, second yellow card, so uh, totaling a red in the 39th minute. I was thinking, um, actually, just as a quick tangent, that Scott Barrett seems to have a penchant now for getting red cards. Um, but it's only his second one ever. It just felt really important when he got it against Wolbies in Perth uh, uh, back in, what, 2019 or 2020, whenever it was. Um, but in any way, you Speaking could Speaking to that at... point, though, Ando, sorry, hang can on, I just, just... Yep, yep. I was just going to finish my point, and then you can jump on in. Yep. Um, it could be really easy to look at the Scott Barrett red card and say, well, New Zealand lost because they had a red card for half the game. But they were 14 nil down by that point and things were not going well in their favour. Mitch? I was just going to say uh, that Scott Barrett is the type of player that you can rile up and you can goad into giving away penalties and doing silly things like the second yellow that he did. Like That was such an unnecessary clean-out against Marks. There was no... There was nothing legal about that at all. He's come from mm. distance. He's lost lost his feet. He's tucked his arm. Like, just completely stupid. Complete brain fart from him, particularly when he's already on one yellow, yellow card already. But that, again, linking back to the point, is the pressure that South Africa put them under. New Zealand is known for putting pressure on oppositions, forcing mistakes. They have very rarely been tested to this level of when things go wrong, how do we get out of this hole? And this All Blacks team this weekend didn't have any answers. And they were making mistakes. They were giving away penalties. They were getting frustrated. And once the points started to pile up, you could tell that the players were frustrated, but they had no one that was stepping up and saying, okay, this is what we need to do. Nothing was working for them. And the Springboks just kept going from level to level, from gear to gear to gear, turning the screws. And you could just tell 
that the players were sort of overawed at points. A couple of the players who stood out for the box, I mean, Lockie, you already mentioned the midfield combination of Andre Esterhausen and Kalen uh, Moody. Um, they both, uh, Moody had three runs for 70 meters and Esterhausen seven runs for 60. So they're getting an incredible amount of pay. You also Damien Lemsey of Lemsey at fullback, uh, 14 runs, 104 meters as well. Like excellent, excellent meters there and opportunities for those players to be making breaks. But a really interesting stat is the overall tackle completion percentage. So the, um, the box only made 80% of their tackles which I always find interesting until I remember the the way in which they choose to defend, which is to play that rush umbrella defense, which is trying to put pressure and force a bit of chaos into the attacking line and then trust the cover defense to be able to come across and make the make good what chaos they've created. Um, so, yeah, I, I always find that one a bit interesting in terms of the willingness to let um, missed tackles exist in terms of the broader approach to pressuring or breaking up the attacking play of the opposition. Uh, key area that New Zealand really struggled with were the lineouts. They only won 66% or 10 of 15 of their own lineouts. And so that is itself an area where the box were able to put pressure on. But look, if we're to see the positives from a Kiwi perspective, um, it, it's not the World Cup. It was the warm-up to the World Cup. And so on that note, why don't we move on to I love the, the other World Cup. I love the just. comment that Ian Foster made after the game and whether it was in the press conference or in the interview was just that this loss has taken all pressure off us. This is exactly <laughs> what we needed because now the pressure's off us. No one thinks we're favorites anymore and we can just cruise through the World Cup. Oh, what I was like, geez, what you're, uh, that's an interesting outlook. <laughs> that's a spin doctor, spin doctor right there. That's a bit of marketing. If there was one trophy we didn't want, it was this one. I was like, yeah, good yeah. on you, Ian. How's the job hunt going? <laughs> Moving on to the other matches, Mitch, let's keep this rolling. And um, we're going to start off with a historic win by Fiji versus England, 22 to England, 32 Fiji. This was an incredible game. Lockie, sum it up for us, my friend. History. And frankly, Pool C now looks totally horrifying from Mm. all of your perspective. You've got the flying Fijians, beating England for the first time in their seven matches, beating them at Twickenham and and coming from behind to do it. I mean, it wasn't easy for them. They were down. You know, they England had the early try through Johnny May. And then I think Celestino Rabatamunda, product of the mm-hmm. Fijian drawer, had the game of his life ripped apart the English backline, terrorised the back three all day. And they just, they outclassed them in every single way. Caleb Muntz kicked well. Yeah, and they were, at one stage, they were out to a 20 points to eight lead midway through the second half. And Twickenham was silent, except for the back corner of Fijian fans going absolutely off chops. So looking at this holistically, Fijian played a really good all-round game. They kicked their penalties when they came up. They executed at set piece. And they rattled them in contact. It was a really good performance from the Fijians, Mitch. I'm scared. I've got to say, I'm scared. I I saw this result and I was wondering, going into the game, did England sort of poop the bed here or did Fiji really turn the sword and, and deservedly win this? And Fiji did, to their credit. They put England under a lot of pressure and they took their opportunities and they scored some incredible tries, some incredible tacking rugby on display. 
how good it is to see the Fiji and Drua back backbone that is forming this team. Some of the players making that step up into the national side. Fiji is going to be a real weapon in this World Cup. And as a Wallabies fan, particularly after this morning's game, I'm pretty nervous of how this game could go. Um, I If we don't bring our A game against Fiji, they have all of the skills at their disposal to put a, a number on us. They've got momentum now. One thing I will say before I throw back to Ando, how fantastic was it to see Vinaya Habossi back playing rugby for Fiji? We missed him this year in Super Rugby. I know there was a little bit of off-field stuff and there was a reason why he wasn't playing, but how good was it to see the boss man back out there smashing blokes and just making everyone look like children? Look, the the best part of this entire experience is watching England go down again and having more and more pain and misery heaped upon them under Steve Borthwick. Now, I have nothing against Steve Borthwick, but I have everything against the nation of England itself. And so very, very happy for more misery and pain to be heaped upon them as a nation as a whole. So It is amazing how Eddie Jones can still get blamed. Yeah, well, it's still six Eddie or Jones seven test matches. Yep, still his fault. Everything is his fault. Um, but Italy versus Japan. Italy getting up 42 to 21 against Japan. Uh, Lockie, again, I believe you're the one that's seen the majority of this game. Um, can you give us just a quick overview before we then cover some of the other matches from the weekend as well? Yeah, 100%. Um, the takeaway is that Melbourne Rebels got dudded getting Monte Ioane when he scored more tries in this game than he did in a full season uh, down at Amy. That was ridiculous to see him play that well. His hat-trick was class. It was total class. He ended up pulling out the match winner. But we look at back at this game and, yeah, it's blown out towards the end. But, my God, it was 28-21 with four minutes to play. Japan were well in this. So I think all the chat around Japan not being up for it at the moment is totally false because that scoreline flattered Italy. Yes, Montiuani had a great game, ended up picking up that hat-trick. Um, seeing Ange Capuzzo is one of the great joys of rugby at the moment. He was playing on the wing too to, uh, to accommodate a different fullback and he still ripped and tore on that far side as well. He was playing mm-hmm. on the right wing. Um, but I'd, I'd be worried for Italy. I don't think they're going to progress. I'm under no illusions. They're in a pool with France and New Zealand. So they're the two that are going through. But I believe that Italy will scare the absolute hell out of one of those teams with the way that their backs are playing because you've got Tommaso Allen running around, Paolo Garbisi, Steve Varney is an excellent halfback, and they've got real weapons out in the wings with, you know, Pierre Bruno, Capuzzo, Iwani. This is a team that's going to score points in the World Cup. So you've got Italy beating New Zealand. Italy topping the pool, absolutely. And um, spare a thought for who else is in their pool? Um, was it uh, Chile? No, they're pool D. Regardless. Now, Italy's not progressing, but they're going to scare some people. As well they should. Let's move on to a couple of the other games. I'll talk through Ireland, Samoa, and then, Lucky, I might throw back to you for Scotland, Georgia. So Ireland got up 17 over Samoa, 13. It was definitely an Irish um, second-string team, not their full starting complement. But either way, this was a a wonderful match from Samoa. Incredibly, incredibly close. And if it wasn't for some poor execution in 
73rd, 74th minute of, actually 77th minute of the game, then Samoa very well could have come away with this win. Uh, Lima Sopawanga uh, missed a really easy kick into touch. Luckily, he got the ball back again um, for another kick and finally found touch, got the line out, which they promptly then gave away to Ireland. Um, so there Is were a couple the of header? opportunities. That they- Intercept try? Um, no, that was earlier. No, that was that Duncan was that was Power. Area, Duncan Power. Yeah, um, yeah I've seen that. Absolutely brilliant. He goes for the intercept, gets uh, touches the island player, goes straight into his face. No, God, did he knock it on? He's like, no, just hit him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and look, taking taking from this game, I think we'll see what we're seeing is the benefit of the changed eligibility rules by World Rugby to allow players who maybe had left Australia, had left Fiji sorry, Australia or New Zealand primarily, I should say, um, who've gone and played overseas for a number of years, come back and play for either the country of origin or um, ancestry. And it has been an excellent, excellent opportunity for countries like Samoa, Fiji and Tonga, Samoa and Tonga particularly, to have these star-studded players such as Lima Sopawanga come back into the team. And so they're going to give uh, some of the the more established teams within the World Cup, a really big challenge, an island experience that over the weekend. Lockie, throwing to you, Scotland versus Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. And another great lesson in how scary Paul C is, uh, Georgia actually led at halftime. Yes, the Scots ended up running away with it, but Georgia was up 6-0 at halftime and looked the better side until about probably 45, 46 minutes in. So really good Georgian counterattack as well. We always talk about the scrum and them running around, um, but their counterattack was regularly pulling apart Scotland in the first half. I think one, about 20 minutes in, uh, went 60 metres, ended up getting over the goal line. So they had the Scots under immense pressure, but you know the dam was always going to burst because this Scottish team is full of class. And once again, it's the Finn Russell, Duan van der Merwe combination. Um, they were carving up all day. I think... Dewey's probably in the top two or three wingers in the world at the moment on form, up there with Damien Pinot and Kurtley Aronser. He's just in sublime form. So it's great that the Scots keep robbing South Africa, keep doing it. Um, but then, you know, a couple of Aussies popping up their head, you know, um, Jack Dempsey went over towards the end. And I think the Georgians just ran out of puff. But there's enough there to suggest that, yes, Georgia will be scary, but... Scott's still, in my book, have a chance to potentially sneak through their pool of death too. Mate, there's part of me that absolutely hates that Jack Dempsey is playing for Scotland. I just can't handle that right now. It's just the worst. But that's a conversation for another time. Uh, Let's quickly pop on now into the next match, which was Argentina versus Spain, I believe. That's the emblem for Mm -hmm. Spain. Um, And and this was a dominant... 62 to 3 victory. So, did any of you guys catch this game? I haven't had a chance to watch any of it. So, no. I have no insight. No. Okay, let's move on. 62 3. Well done, Argentina. Um, Spain, better luck next time. And we're going to move now just for a quick comment on the world rankings. So, I'll just quickly go through from 1 to 10 Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, France, Scotland, England, Argentina, Australia, Fiji, and Wales. So what this is showing us is currently, is, is this the most updated one? Didn't we have Fiji at number seven? Wasn't that what we were saying earlier? Uh, we did. Yeah, I thought I had updated that. I don't know what happened there. Oh, it hasn't come across. Okay, so either way, we should actually have Fiji above Australia and, and Wales. 
And so what this actually means is that the um, Australian pool, we are in pool, um, pool C, all of us are ranked basically like what is it eighth through to tenth or eleventh within within the um, within the World Cup rankings, and it just kind of shows us what Australian rugby is at the moment. But also, we, we can say that Pool C is going to be easy, but actually, we've got a lot of teams around our level that we're going to struggle with. Lucky, how confident are you that we're actually going to be able to get through the pool unscathed? We're progressing. We're progressing. I have no doubt that we're progressing, but I am seriously concerned about complacency so we come Mm. into it in our first games against georgia which i think actually works for us because wales and fiji play each other straight off the bat and i think they're playing for a quarterfinal spot straight off the bat they don't get any second chances after that you drop that first game historically it's very difficult to kick on unless you're south africa in 2019 so we've got a really good recipe for australia here to go in against georgia I think you play one of your strongest teams and you get those combinations sorted because otherwise, back-to-back games against Fiji and Wales, by then the pool's already decided. Yes, Portugal, you know, still a test match. It's still important and we'll put out a strong team. But that's one that you're banking five points in the back of your mind on. So we mm-hmm. get one chance. We get one chance to get things right against Georgia before Fiji, then Wales. And I think that we'll be doing enough to top that pool. Yep, yep, very well said. Um, well, I think what that we will do a preview next week. Hold on. I just give me one second because I have just updated the slide and we do need to do it properly because there has been a fair bit of movement. All right. There we go. So to read through it properly in first, we have Ireland in second, we have South Africa, third, France, fourth, New Zealand. Now, New Zealand have moved down two spaces. And France has moved up four. Scotland in fifth, Argentina in sixth, Fiji in seventh, England in eighth, Australia in ninth, and Wales in tenth. So that is how things currently sit two weeks out from the World Cup. Does that change your thoughts at all? Yeah. <laughs> Look, for me, for me, no, because we, we knew what Fiji were capable of prior to this. Um, I don't think it's any particular surprise there. Uh, what I'm particularly enjoying, like I know Australia, Australian rugby over the last few years has not been where it should be. So I'm under no illusions that we should be like top four within the world or something like that. I don't expect that right now. But like I said before, I'm really enjoying that England is currently plummeting down uh, and and they're currently uh, eighth within the world ranking. So enjoy that one, you pommy bums. Um, But let's finish off now the pod. It has been a lot of fun being here with both of you. Thank you so much. We are, if I just jump onto the World Rugby website, we are 11 days, 8 hours and 2 minutes away from the Rugby World Cup for 2023, which is incredibly exciting. So, ladies and gentlemen, please make sure that you get involved with our Superbury tipping competition, which will be available on all our social media profiles. Also, don't forget to jump onto our Discord as well in order to come and be a part of the best Australian rugby community going around and then lastly please consider going to ko-fi.com slash pick and drive rugby to either give us a one-off or ongoing donation anything would assist in improving the quality and regularity of the pod so thank you so much Lockie it's been a pleasure Mitch it's been a pleasure ladies and gentlemen I hope you have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next time bye